Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Commons People, the HuffPost Politics podcast with me, Paul War, Graham Demonick, Ned Simons and Lucy Sheriff. In this week's Fun Pack show, we'll look at Tory ministers heading for the Brexit door, Labour's looming row over Trident, the junior doctor strike, A-level feminism and even student grants. First up is David Cameron's newfound freedom for cabinet ministers to speak up for Britain leaving the EU. Scottish Secretary David Mundell became the first openly gay Tory cabinet minister in history with an announcement on Wednesday. But less surprising was Chris Grayling coming out as a Eurosceptic in the Daily Telegraph this morning. And at Commons Business Questions, the SNP's Pete Wisher couldn't resist raising it. Mr Speaker, it's like the proverbial bus. You wait decades for a nasty, brutal, inter-party civil war to come along and two come at once! (laughs) Ned, you watch Business Questions. How did Chris Grayling's newfound Brexit hero status go down with his colleagues? Well, I think um, Chris Bryant, the Labour, Shadow had quite a bit of fun with it, sort of, you know, finally admitting uh, that he was uh, Eurosceptic, which isn't a surprise, obviously. And you've got the kind of proper Eurosceptic benches, Philip Hollibone, Bill Cash, um, obviously quite pleased, but they still think the renegotiation is a total stitch-up. So rather than saying, oh, thank you, Chris Grayling, for showing you on our side, they just kind of went for it more, asking for more debates, asking for more promises... Hollowbone just Never satisfied. Yeah, never satisfied. You give them one thing, they want more, obviously. And Hollowbone particularly is quite upset about the idea of Obama coming here in May and uh, sort of endorsing Britain's EU membership, which he's done before. I think a couple of times Obama's, uh, alongside Cameron, said Britain shouldn't leave. They're very upset about him interfering in domestic British matters. Well, what's interesting is that actually we all, several of us lobby journalists, got an excited text on Monday saying, you've got to go to the lobby briefing on Monday afternoon, something important on Europe's coming. And we all turned up and what happened was that, lo and behold, we got this brand new minute from the Prime Minister to all ministers outlining how they should behave during and before an EU referendum. So it's clear that they had some sort of new freedom and he wanted to be flexible, but reading between the lines... <laughs> It's quite clear that there's some gagging going on yeah, as well. Yeah, it's still a bit of, I mean, Grayling's article in the Telegraph today is still a bit of a fudge, really. I mean, he's just saying, you know, membership as it currently stands would be a disaster. But the whole point is Cameron's going to claim it won't be as it stands. So it's sort of the, the reporting around his article saying, oh, he's come out for Brexit. Well, he didn't really. Well, that's because he can't, Because he can't. So <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a, bit of a, a weird... What, what's yeah, interesting right. about that, that note from the Prime Minister this week is they spent ages writing this note. I mean, yeah. they put a lot of time into it and they, they're trying to square the circle between giving people freedom but not undermining Cameron. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a great line in there that there should be ministers should say or do nothing to undermine the Prime Minister's renegotiation anywhere. Uh, and in the chamber, what was really interesting is that ministers can, from the front bench, say look, I'm in favour of Britain leaving the European Union, but that's all they can say. They can't argue against the government line. And they'll, worse, they'll have to make the government case from the front bench. They can't go all Hillary Benn. They can't go all Hillary Benn. They can't yeah. do that at all. And I think that's interesting. 
but they equally they can't go to the backbenches and pop up and say, oh, here's another hat on. Actually, this is me as a backbencher. I hate everything to do with Brussels. They can't do that because the government could see quite craftily that actually a few Eurosceptics are really good on theatrics in the chamber. They're really good. Chris Chopin, people like that. They're old hands. They can have a device virtually every day and a minister to try and force a minister on the backbenches. That's not happening. Is it quite risk-free for Chris Cradling to kind of make this bold gesture? Because if we believe uh, uh, Commons whispers, he's on his way out in, your, in the next reshuffle anyway. So you may as well kind of make the most of his status on the front bench Definitely. to be a kind of folk hero for the Eurosceptics. It's not been this Chris Grey thing for nothing, is <laughs> it? I mean, the the wild thing now. The, the wild thing. Yeah, Wishart describes him as the, a mini big beast, which I thought was a bit... <laughs> yeah, a bit slightly dummy with fake craze. <laughs> Graham, how do you think the PM's note and this freedom will affect the, the real issue, which is... Boris and Theresa May and their future leadership ambitions. Yeah, so that, that's the big subplot, isn't it, to, um, to, the, to the referendum itself, is ha- the staking out of the ground of the would-be next Labour, uh, sorry, Conservative Party leader. Cameron's going to step down before the next election, so everyone's jostling, jostling full position. Um, the runners of riders, as we, as, we, as we know it are, uh, or we think, will be Boris Johnson, Theresa May, George Osborne, and maybe a list of and others, but those are certainly the big contenders. You could have Nicky Morgan, you could have Steve Crabb at some point, who knows, or, or even Liam Fox. Penny Morden, I read this Penny morning, has been, been floated. Pretty Patel has been mentioned as well. Yeah. The There's certainly a market, isn't there, for someone who's an, an outer in yeah. a leadership contest? I think, I think the, the, the point for all of them is that this is, this is going to be a quite a crucial, crucial time for their leadership bids, because they, they don't want to be... Two, I think there's two aspects to it. Do you want to be on the losing side of the, of, of the argument? You know, do you want to be kind of tired as a loser, whichever side you go on? And there is, a, and there is a, a point about could a, um, a Tory MP who's voted to stay in the EU, could he, could he or she actually be able to lead the Conservative Party given that the grassroots is so firmly Eurosceptic and many of the backbenchers are? So it's a kind of calculation they're going to have to make in terms of how... Pr- a, what side of the fence they want to be, and B, how prominent they're going to be in, that, in the campaign, and leading, whether they are actually going to lead these campaigns or not. Surely it's better for them you know, to, to claim they're an outer, if even if they secretly want to be in, and then lose, but then they're a Eurosceptic, and you're kind of more likely to win, aren't you? Yeah, well, that's the big calculation. Lucy, you're our 20-something representative <laughs> here. We're all waiting <laughs> for you. Yeah. Clinging um, on to it. Um, I'm just in my 30s. <laughs> well... No. These two have just said this. I'm well over that. Um, lots of people we'll assume that under 24s uh, in this EU referendum will be pro-EU, but is that really the case? Um, well, I, th- I think on the whole, yes, it is. There was a poll by HEPI out last November which showed, I think it was 70% of students supported uh, Britain staying in the EU. But the interesting fact about that was uh, was that only 46% they said they would definitely vote. So there's this, there's this feeling that um, few students feel strongly about this issue. Um, we know there is anti-EU sentiment among students. Um, I'm sure you'll remember last November at the CBI conference uh, to, yeah. I think they were teenagers, uh, heckled David Cameron, which I'm sure he was delighted with. Um, and they were part of Students for Britain. And uh, they raised concerns over the impact of staying in the EU on small businesses. So I think... I think so it's not one-dimensional, is it? There's a, they're not homogenous yeah, young people. I mean, I mean, there's I think it's around 2 million university students in the UK, so this vote is very much up for grabs. 
Yeah, good point. Now, collective responsibility was just as much an issue for Labour as for the Tories this week, with the battle over Trident policy getting underway in earnest. With the government looking to exploit Labour divisions with a Commons vote to renew the weapons system maybe as early as March, the Corbyn missile crisis is hotting up. See what I did there? Corbyn yeah, missile crisis? That's an homage to Owen Bennett, who's not here because he's in Cuba. Anyway, here's Ken Livingstone, the man who now co-chairs Labour's Defence Review with the new shadow Defence Secretary Emily Thornbury on Newsnight last night. We will desperately try and do it as rapidly as possible. So we'll focus on the Trident issue ahead of the rest of the Defence Review. And that could be done within months, a couple of months. That, with a bit of luck, that can be done in eight to ten weeks. Graham, there's a big gap between Labour MPs and Shadow Ministers on the one hand and Jeremy Corbyn and party members on the other hand on this issue of Trident. What, what's your take on it? Um, yeah, there is that. But also there's a slight, slight kind of generational uh, um, diff- point of difference on, on the issue of, of nuclear itself, not just nuclear weapons, but nuclear power as well. I think... Um, his, uh, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell are from a slightly older generation where, where nuclear, be it uh, power stations, be it, be it bombs, was, was, uh, was kind of verboten, was, 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 were dreadful things. But o- over the years, I think the younger kind of intake, maybe kind of 40 years older, younger, have a slightly more nuanced view on, on, on nuclear power being actually... That's a good thing. That's that it's safer than we used to think it's it was. Better for it's, climate change. It's better for no climate change. All, you know, there's no, you know, it's not fossil fuels. It's not coal. It's not that, that kind of dirty business. So there's slightly kind of nuance there as well, and that's that's going to be quite difficult, I think, sometimes for for Corbyn to square that circle between between that two between those two issues and get everyone on board on on, on both. I think. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's quite clear. Look, I've got a mandate. I, I was elected. Clearly, everyone knew I was a unilateralist. A lot of people have come back into the party who are anti-war and anti-nuclear. Um, young people in particular, as Graham says, um, a lot of them are very um, anti-foreign intervention, but also some of them are very anti uh, trident. Now that isn't homogenous, um, as I'm sure Lucy probably agree. But what's interesting is that there's this division between the party in the country and the party in Parliament. And I think what's what's happened this week is that we did a story on the key in development in all of this is what will the unions do? What will they do to protect defence sector jobs? And I found out this week that Unite were going to dig in and not change their policy. They're not going to go towards unilateralism when they have a policy conference in July. Now, that's going to be a really, really significant conference. And the lot on the left were hoping that somehow Unite would ride to their rescue because they've got key votes on the NEC. But more important than that, they've got a key chunk of votes at party conference, which is the only place that this policy can change. And you've got to love Livingston popping up on Newsnight again. I think the Labour press team were kind of annoyed at him this morning, which must be a constant state of being for them. <laughs> Like, it just doesn't go away, does he? I've never seen Ken Livingston <laughs> on the telly as much as I no. have. I know. Last, when he was mayor, I don't think he was on telly be. that much. No, absolutely, no. He was, he, he was, he was a kind of big deal in the 80s. In the 90s, he, was, he, was, he sung a song with Blur, for God's sake. <laughs> I can't remember him getting any as much profile he has now. You know, Ken's back. But it's, it's good news for Corbyn, in a way, that um, this morning there was something in The Guardian suggesting that actually he is in tune with the members. Isn't yeah, they, they kind of ran round lots of the constituency parties to find out actually kind of how many new members they were. And that it's quite a lot, particularly in London and England. It's not so good in Scotland, though, which is a worry for them given the elections in May. Yeah. But in England, the numbers have gone up. It's usually kind of young people, I think, and people coming back to the party. 
not, it says from the Guardian's research, it's not kind of hard left. They're left, but they're not kind of infiltrating militants. Yeah. And also, good for Corbyn as well, was um, Mandelson claimed that, you know, 30,000 people had left the party as a result of, of Corbyn winning. And this Guardian survey says, no, it's more around 13,000. So kind of positive numbers for Corbyn in terms of the local parties, if not yeah. the wider public, perhaps. The interesting thing, I think, it was John Ashworth this week going public saying, look, it's now almost inevitable there'll be a free vote on Trident within Labour. And I think given that Jeremy Corbyn is so keen on reviewing the current mm. official position, which is to support Trident, then that's kind of, he's right, John Ashworth's absolutely bang on. And the interesting thing will be, can they manage it in a better way than they manage the divisions over, over Syria? It's not looking likely, is it? Let's be honest. Um, that's difficult. Not at all. Um, anyway, that's enough of Trident and divisions. Um, now over to Mr. Demonic for the quiz of the week. Still, <laughs> still no jingle. Still, 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 no, still no jingle yet. And this, this is usually um, where o- Owen Bennett comes into into his own. It can't um, be worse so than any of Owen's quizzes. So, so absolutely. But I, I've tried to follow the model that he's, he's, laid, <laughs> he's laid down. He can be angry about it in, in, in the quiz because it's it probably it's probably ridiculous. Um, so the big what, the, the big news beyond Westminster this week um, was the death of David Bowie. Yeah, obviously, on, on Monday it was pretty pretty shocking for for most people of any interest in, in popular culture. Um, and David Cameron paid tribute almost instantly to uh, his his legendary status and got a lot of flack for it for for. for Trying too hard, trying to kind of boost his own tweet, his own status. So the response was um, <laughs> interesting. Um, so, but he wasn't the only politician who oh, paid tribute. Here's the quiz paid tribute to um, David Bowie this week, the Thin White Duke, the uh, Ziggy Stardust. Um, so the quiz is Bowie or Noe. That's good. <laughs> oh, that's worthy of Owen Bennett. Yeah, Go on, worthy of Owen Bennett. Go on, fire away. Um, so uh, was this a politician paying tribute to David Bowie, or was it somebody? Was it somebody else? So Bowie, if it was the politician, yeah. Noe. Noe. Note the pronunciation as <laughs> well, given that it's, right. this yeah. wouldn't have worked if we'd all agreed that Nowy. it was Bowie. Nowy. Nowy or Bowie. Bowie himself said it was Bowie. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, number one, I think of David Bowie without... I can't think of David Bowie without thinking of Life on Mars. And as soon as I hear, heard of his death, I was very, very sad. Life on Mars comes flowing back into my mind. Wonderful song, wonderful guy. Oh, is that... I'm afraid I've got that straight away. It's yeah. Jeremy Corbyn. Well, oh. that's what you said. That, that, okay, well, that's, I, that's Bowie. Bowie, then. Bowie. I'm, I'm, Paul swayed me. What about Lucy? you? I'm going to go with the majority. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was Bowie. It was, it was Jeremy Corbyn. That was oh. his claim. Um, if you were sad today, just remember the world is four billion years old and you somehow managed to exist at the same time as David Bowie. Oh, I don't know. I saw people that going around, but I'm not sure who... Noe, I'll, I'll I'm go with Noe. Noe. I'm going to say Noe. It's too good for a politician. Too, I mean, it's corny, but... It, it was it is Noe, yeah. It wasn't a politician. It was Simon Pegg, but not, not the comedian Simon Pegg, even though the BBC said it was the comedian <laughs> Simon Pegg, and swiftly had to change that. Um, goodbye, David Bowie. From Brixton to global superstardom via Beckenham. <laughs> Ooh, who, who. That, that sounds like a politician playing. Yeah. To, is it a Beckenham MP? Bowie, yeah. yeah I'm going to go for Bowie, politician. Bowie. Lucy? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Noe. You're going to say Noe? Up. Yeah. That's good. Ned? Bowie. 
It was it was Bowie. It was a politician. Oh. That was that was James Cleverly, the MP for Braintree. Oh. <laughs> also, the London Assembly member from Bromley and Bexley. <laughs> I knew there was an angle. <laughs> Um, David Bowie was one of my most important inspirations. So fearless, so creative, he gave us magic for a for a lifetime. Is that, is, is that Blair's awful? Is Bowie? Could be, could be, could be Tony Blair. Could be TB. Ooh, yeah, I'm going to go for Bowie. It sounds like a politician. What do you reckon? Uh, yeah, it sounds cheesy enough. Sounds like a cheesy yeah. enough to be a politician, Ned. Yeah, Bowie. I think it's. It's not a politician. It was Kanye West. <laughs> Tony so, Blair, Kanye West. That's actually, Kanye similar West speaking West. styles, yeah? yeah? Maybe. Isn't he Could pitching for... I was going to say, who wants yeah. to be president? Well, well absolutely, wants to, be, wants to be president, isn't he? Yeah, so, so he's kind of politician. I think we could have Bowie Noe for you're both all, yeah. You're all right. It could swing <laughs> both ways, that answer, appropriately Pri- enough. Prizes for all. This is the very last one, and I feel this is dragging on now. Crying for David Bowie as a young boy in a small Welsh town. He changed my haircut and my life. Ooh. <laughs> no, that's got to be Noe. Is, is that Noe. A, would any politician? That's, that's vaguely political. I'm going to go for Bowie. Paul's going Bowie. Paul's saying politician. Lucy's saying no. 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 It was a politician. Oh. It was Kevin Brennan, the oh. MP for Cardiff West, and also a member of the MPs Band. <laughs> MP4. 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 So. Uh, so that was a quiz. Brilliant. If you're listening, I hope that did you justice. That was a brilliant homage to Bennett. I like that. Right, quiz over. Junior doctors. Now, junior doctors were on the picket lines this week for the first doctor's strike in 40 years. Jeremy Hunt refused to budge in the battle to get a new contract for the doctors, but the medics uh, in the BMA showed they weren't bluffing. Our HuffPost team interviewed strikers, including Dr. Leslie Search, outside UCH in London. So I think today's a really sad day, to be honest. I'd much rather be in there doing my job and delivering babies and looking after mums. But I think that with this new contract that they're trying to impose on us, I would find it really hard to do my job safely. So what I'd want to say to my patients is, I want to continue to look after you and do a great job and give you great care. And I'm worried that with this new contract, I won't be able to do that. And that's why I'm standing out here today in the freezing cold, talking to people as they pass and just trying to get the word out there that this is not going to be a good contract to serve our patients and serve the NHS well. Graham, even before the strike, the doctors were using social media quite effectively, weren't they, to get their case across? Yeah, they, they, they have been, yeah. They've been kind of posting pictures during the... when um, Jeremy Hunt has been arguing that they should be working weekends, they've been posting pictures and working very hard at weekends, etc, etc. But they've had a little bit of um, a kind of blowback from one section of the, the media. Um, the Sunday the story on Sunday, I think it was, who um, it kind of described them as the, the Moe medics and, mm. and scraped a number of pictures from Facebook and, and other social media of uh, doctors on holiday, sipping champagne, etc., etc. How dare um, they? Sorry? How dare they? Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> it was, I think the, the, interesting, the interesting dimension to that is, 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 is probably twofold. One, in media terms, it's quite an old kind of media kind of trick really is it to kind of take something and, and, and whip up a bit of a kind of caricature of, of somebody and and actually it, it works quite well for, for for kind of new media like us shall we say who can expose actually that isn't quite true you can you can speak to these people directly there's there's not this kind of um, distance between between people anymore um but but maybe the sun are, are, are on to something in terms of they, ha- they are the biggest newspaper in the country. Uh, they sell the most, most copies of any other. And they're probably kind of reflecting perhaps a, a view that is, 
that something that doesn't get aired. Some of the public might be thinking, well, hang on a minute, aren't these doctors supposed to be taking a Hippocratic oath? Aren't we paying for them to go through university for seven years and then some of them are, are going off to Australia at the first opportunity to, to ply, their, ply their trade over there? So uh, it's easy to criticise someone like the Sun, for, which, yeah. which we and, 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 and perhaps others did, but what, what they are reflecting a view. Aren't but there's they? also they, the point, they? isn't there, that Sun readers, I'm sure they were trying to reflect Sun readers' view that actually most of their readers' average wage are probably about 20, 25 right. grand, and these doctors, some of them often are going on to 40 grand. I mean, they start off at roughly about 25, go to 30, then 40. And they're probably thinking, well, hold on a tip, you know, um, it's one thing, you, me backing the NHS, everyone likes the NHS, but, you know, push comes to shove, I don't want anyone in my family being endangered by what you're doing. Well, they're saying, they point kind of the argument that people were being put in danger wasn't really correct, because during the strike, it was, you know, the position was being covered by other doctors, senior doctors stood in to fill the kind of, the, the role the junior doctors were taking. And their whole point is, of course, that actually the new contract will will endanger people because it will make doctors more tired and therefore more likely to make mistakes. So I think there's that one of the big arguments you've seen, isn't it? It's doctors saying, it's not that we're not putting people in danger by having a strike. The government's putting people in danger by changing our contracts and affecting how effective we'll be as yeah. doctors over time. And Graham's point about new media is really important. This is a, the first doctor's strike in 40 years. 40 years ago, you didn't have Twitter, you didn't have Facebook, you certainly didn't have 24-hour media, and you didn't have online media. And what's interesting is that this week, for example, the government, on the day of the strike, came out with a new hardball attack line against doctors. doctors. They said, look, we need weekend working. Why? Because there's a 40% more, a 20% more chance of you suffering from a fatal stroke at the weekend than during the week. Now, they came out with that statistic during our lobby briefing of all places. Jeremy Hunt repeated it later. I challenged the number 10 spokeswoman at the time and said, well, that's the statistic. There's, 40, there's a 20% more chance of dying of stroke at the weekend. But is there any evidence whatsoever that statistic is, has a causal link to the level of staffing? And they couldn't come up with a decent answer. And what's interesting is that we had a blog this week, yesterday, from a professor of psychiatry who demolished that exact claim and said, look, there is no evidence it's linked to staffing. And that's interesting. Also, um, the really interesting thing from the government's point of view is what's happening politically, though, for Labour. I mean, Labour, it's not easy for Labour, this, this, this strike, let's be honest. Justin Madders, who's a junior shadow health spokesman, on the day of the strike, the morning of the strike, put out a statement that said junior doctors had, quote, no choice but to strike. Now, that sounded very much like Labour officially saying, we back this strike. Now, as it happened, I'm told that was more cock-up than conspiracy. It was just a, as is ever in the thick of it, world of <laughs> politics. It was a loose use of language yeah. by him, and he was a new, new to the job. What happened is that Heidi Alexander then goes out, does a pooled clip in which she makes clear that the line is as follows. We understand that junior doctors may feel as though they've got no choice. Now, that's a very different line, and it's not endorsing the strike. And what's interesting is that on Tuesday's Shadow Cabinet, um, we're told that Heidi Alexander made clear that she was not going to be endorsing this strike and said she, she would not be on a picket line. But Immediate, immediately after that, John McDonnell gets his coat on, goes across yeah. the road to St Thomas's and renews his uh, presence on the picket line. Because there have been mixed messages, wasn't there, from Labour over that particular thing of going to the picket line. I mean, as you say, Alexander didn't. Um, Lucy Powell on BBC Radio said she didn't go down to the picket line, didn't want to politicise the strike. As, yeah. I think, at the very moment that John McDonnell was on a picket line. So again, sort of Labour isn't delivering one single message on something that you'd think they'd be kind of unified on.
Is there anything that the Labour Party is is united on? It seems like they can't even on a, on a on even on a strike. You think this is somewhere they should have a shared shared position, but they clearly not. And even don't. on their pet subject, the NHS. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right um, now, Lucy, um, student medics have a real stake in all of this, don't they? Because a lot of young doctors. This is what this strike was about. It wasn't consultants. It was junior yes. doctors. What's your take on what happened? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, um, they obviously play a huge role in. The future of the NHS um, and even unfortunately the whole row is putting off prospective medic students from even applying to university so, yeah well there was um, there were some figures out um, recently which said 37% of prospective students have been put off studying um, and I mean what what does this spell for the future of the NHS it's not not yeah. really um, a good start is it and um, I mean especially as they've already got recruitment shortage anyway and uh, the student medics that are, that are already on courses studying to become doctors uh, that I've spoken to, they brought up the issue around um, their health. So they're saying, you know, this isn't about money. This is about our health. How can we treat patients if we are run down, we're tired, um, and mental health is a, a massive problem in, in the NHS and for doctors. And, you know, they're saying, well, what about our mental health? You know what what happens to that, and they're they're also saying that even though it might not put them off studying medicine once they finish, what's stopping them from you know moving to a lot of them cited Australia as a great place yeah. to go to be a doctor. So even if we are getting them trained, then the problem is once they leave university, um, you know what's here to keep them. And Sarah Wollaston made that same. Yeah, her daughter, I think, is yeah. a was in the Tory MP chair of the. Health Select Committee, her daughter, who is also a GP, I think she said her and eight of her doctor friends have left and gone to Australia. Yeah. Well, the, the A&E strike, the really serious strike with emergency cover withdrawn, is next month. So I think this is one that's not going to go away, unless there's going to be some last-minute um, detente between the government and the junior doctors. I mean, some people in government suggest that there is some real chance of, of conciliation before the next strike, but let's see. By the time the next podcast, we'll know. Right. Um, new subject, a clear majority of student and junior doctors are now women, and it's a far cry from the male-dominated profession of Sir Lancelot Spratt. Remember him? You probably don't. You're probably too young. Absolutely anyway, no idea. No, <laughs> doctors in the house movies, they were brilliant, sort of 60s movies, this old cinema. He was the consultant, bumbled around. Anyway. Uh, it's but, a hammer horror. Is that you know, it? Carry on Doctor, do you remember those? That's carry it. on Doctor, yeah. I mean, you know, Jim Dale was the doctor <laughs> figure. Right. But now, of course, you know, it's, it's women who are the majority when it comes to doctors and when it comes to medical students. And that was my clunky link to <laughs> A-level feminism. Um, now, um, this week, Labour MP Rupert Hook had an adjournment debate on government plans to write feminism out of the A-level curriculum. Here's Rupert Hook in the House of Commons. So when the question arose in the other place, um, the, the minister replied that those who want their feminism fixed should do A-level sociology. I think that that's just unacceptable to think in this compartmentalised way. I think feminism should be widened, not narrowed, within and between disciplines. And this mooted rewriting of history is nothing short of sinister. It's deleting women. Graham, did Rupert Hugg get much joy from the government? Uh, yeah, yeah, she, she, she seemed to. So to, to go, back a, go back a step, um, at the end of last year, a, a draft version of the new curriculum came out and it appeared that feminism had been, had been dropped from the 
from the curriculum. And can you do an A-level in feminism now? I didn't know politics, this. No, 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 sorry, it's, it's, in, sorry, it's in the politics A-level. Right, it, was, okay. it was one of the modules or one of the key, uh, I think there was four key areas that they said they were going to um, study, including socialism and, and three others, but feminism was, was, wasn't one of them. And among the kind of 17 key thinkers, I, I, I think, that were listed in the curriculum, only one of them was a, was a woman as well. Right. So there's an immediate kind of sense of, hang on a minute, and this is, this is relating to Rupert Huck's point about um, women being kind of deleted, deleted from history. Um, so she raised this 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 this, this point in um, Commons in, in an adjournment debate this week, and I think she was kind of batting on a pretty good wicket because I think there had been some sounds that the government were preparing some kind of U-turn or revision uh, in, in the lead up to it. There's a couple of stories suggesting as much, but there hadn't been any detail, and had, certainly hadn't been a minister saying publicly on the record that there was going to be any change. And um, uh, Nick Gibb, the schools minister, responded to Ruhuk and, and said yes, um, effectively saying that there'd probably been a bit of a kind of error in the draft and there was never any intention to kind of um, to take feminism out of the right. out of the curriculum. But there was a definite acknowledgement that uh, maybe we got it or somebody got it wrong in the civil service or in the drafting of it. But the interesting point is, is, is one that uh, Rupert made again, was that it's not the first time that the government has done this. There was an issue to do with the music syllabus and the number of female composers that were, uh, or, or compositions written by women that were on the, um, on, on the curriculum. Again, a, a very modest number of women composers were, in, were included. And, and for a second time, uh, it, it had been a, a 17-year-old or a teenage student who'd raised the issue, started an online petition, and has effectively kind of brought the government to, to task on this. So it's, it's whether it's a kind of cock-up or conspiracy, again, it, it, it's hard to say, and I tend to kind of go on the kind of cock-up side of things, but, but twice, twice to kind of reduce the role of women in history and, and in the curriculum just seems a bit yeah. cack-handed, really, doesn't it? Definitely. S speaking of A-level students, some of them may take a keen interest in the fact that today the government has formally abolished maintenance grants for poorer students. Um, as Labour MP Wes Streeting put it on his HuffPost blog today, the historic event took place down the corridor, up the stairs, the third delegated legislation committee in committee room nine of the House of Commons. Now, basically, a small group of MPs gathered to, to consider this statutory instrument, which is a tiny bit of legislation, uh, or a secondary piece of legislation, and it means that the, it wasn't debated on the floor of the House of Commons, uh, and there wasn't a full formal vote of MPs. So, Lucy, what will this mean, do you think? Um, well, it, it's it's pretty bad timing, actually, because tomorrow is the UCAS deadline for many uh, universities. And I think UCAS are expecting half a million young people to have applied to university by then. Um, but I just think the government doing this, they're just totally cutting young people out of the conversation. Um, I know this was... Uh, proposed last summer and it was incredibly unpopular then and what the government have done now have just made themselves even more unpopular um, because I mean there are there are figures by put out by UCAS which show low-income students are more likely than ever to apply to university yeah. but that doesn't mean that that's going to continue forever and I just think that 
you know, the government always speaks about how they want to get disadvantaged young people to university or how they want to level the playing field, and I just feel like this is a total slap in the face. Um, what about the parents of these young people? Yeah, so um, there were also some more figures out just this morning from the National Union of Students, which showed that two-fifths of parents on low income say the Grants Act is going to discourage their children from applying to university. Um, And basically, instead of getting a grant, they're now looking at an extra £12,000 loan uh, on top of the already extortionate tuition fees. So it's it's pretty dire state of affairs. Wes Streeting made a point today, actually, didn't he, in his blog for us, that actually now the poorest students are the ones with the biggest debts after this move. And that's quite something. Uh, We're perhaps in new territory. Chris Bryant in the business questions had a fun line to to Chris Grayling, where he said um, Grayling had promised that this would be debated on the floor of the House uh, and that last year, and it didn't happen. And... He said the comms leader may have his huffy puffy face. I'm going to get angry about this later face on, um, but it still didn't happen. Anyway, enough of that. And that brings us finally neatly on to Stat of the Week with Ned Simons. Oh dear. In honour of Owen, I've scribbled it down in bad handwriting to then pass to Graham to read out. So there we go, Graham. It's your stat of the week, right? Yeah, to give it. So, so it's Graham's stat of the week. I'm sorry. It's, it's yes. a full, full title. <laughs> Obviously, uh, he always yeah. comes up with himself. Ghostwritten yeah. by Ned. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so Ned's done, done the researching this week, and it's very good research by the looks of things. <laughs> this week, Scottish Secretary uh, David Mundell. That looks like blind Mundell. Um, <laughs> came out came out as gay, making the 34th openly gay MP. 34th openly gay MP. Did you know Britain has more openly gay MPs than anywhere else in the world? Is that true? Yes. Yes. Really? That's a good stuff. In in quantum or proportion? Is it in in number? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In proportion. And also the Tories stood the most gay candidates at the last election. More than Labour did. And doesn't the SNP have a claim to being the most, the, the gayest parliamentary party in the world? I think it said that at its party conference. So... You know, there's, there's another stuff for you. You can, <laughs> we can, we can carry this on later. We can find out some Excellent. More. Brilliant stuff of the week. Right. Thanks a lot very much for everybody. Um, that's it for this week. Join us all for another Bennett Free Commons People Hooray. podcast <laughs> next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.